1: Hi, I'm Michelle Ward. As a mom, I've looked my children in the eyes with love and hoped I can lead them toward a bright, wonderful future. But as a neurocriminologist who's been studying violent crime for the last 20 years, I've also quietly hoped that at the very least, I'm not raising a future serial killer. And if you can relate to that taboo thought, congratulations, you've just found your new favorite podcast. This is How Not to Raise a Serial Killer. Welcome back to How Not to Raise a Serial Killer. Let's go back to the year 1985. Blockbuster was alive and well, MTV was at its highest ratings ever, and life seemed a little bit more cool, or should I say radical or tubular. The 80s were an intoxicating time for music, movies, that's when all the John Hughes films came out, fashion, thanks Madonna, and nightlife. The tops were cut off, all the hair was much puffier than nowadays, and no one had a cell phone, really. We were rocking blazers with shoulder pads and saying things like, don't have a cow or take a chill pill or gag me with a spoon, whatever that means. Back then, things just seemed a little more stress-free. Although the 80s were considered more chill than today, Dangerous crimes still occurred regularly. Kids were being taken on their parentless walks to school. There were ample amounts of money laundering and crazy drug cases. And there was a rise of serial killers. The 80s began a large wave of crime cases all over the world. And today we're going to talk about a case that is near and dear to my heart. A case that took place only a few minutes from where I live now. And it's a case that took away a young girl named Lisa Ann Mather, someone I knew. Today, we're going to talk about the story of a caped stranger known as The Count, who looked for young victims who were just simply enjoying their nights out on the town in Los Angeles, California. The Sunset Strip was the place to be in Los Angeles if you were looking for a good time. I was much younger and couldn't partake in such an event, but I would look up to all of these teenagers I would see on TV. Even in my early years of elementary school, you would hear names like the Rainbow Bar and the Roxy, the Whiskey a go go places that if you were a teen or in your 20s, if you weren't there, why the hell would you be somewhere else? It attracted all ages, even the younger ones, the teenagers who weren't quite old enough to get in. It was excitement infused with edginess. That's where Lisa Mather comes in. She was a young Angelino who, of course, planned on visiting the strip one night with a group of her friends, trying to get a taste of that intoxicating LA nightlife. It was January 11th, 1985. Lisa and her two friends, Amy and Anthony, met each other on the strip. They had all planned to visit the club that weekend, but They got dismissed. They didn't get in. Either they didn't have the proper ID or it was too crowded. So they quickly thought on their feet. This wasn't their first time there, and they certainly weren't intimidated by the scene. I was quite a bit younger, but I remember Lisa. We'd had Thanksgiving with her and her family just a couple months before this. She seemed so cool, so fun. I remember looking at her curled hair, thinking she looked just like Madonna. I was probably holding my Cabbage Patch Kid. So this group all decided to stick to the sidewalk and listen to the live music through the building walls. It's just loud enough to do that. And after listening to songs from, I imagine, Motley Crue, Poison, Guns N' Roses, I don't know, the three of them joined another group of partygoers and followed them to a local construction site. There, they all hopped on a flatbed truck that was the size of a dance floor and they continued to party. Amy remembered that night Lisa was talking to a guy with long hair who was relatively thin and kind of mysterious. When Amy hopped off the truck, she joined her friend Anthony and they noticed that Lisa was gone. They couldn't see her anywhere. They tried to find her. They looked around. They didn't spot her or the guy she was talking to, but that's when the police arrived and ordered the miners to leave the area. So through all of the hustle and bustle, Amy and Anthony are still searching for Lisa but she was nowhere to be seen. They were going up and down the Sunset Strip, up and down the side streets. They were searching for their friend, but she just seemed to be gone. Remember, this was well before cell phones, so the only way to find her was to physically look for her. And they found nothing. They finally went home and Amy stayed by her phone, waiting for a call from Lisa that would never come. Shortly thereafter, Lisa's mother filed a missing persons report with the police. Unfortunately, the police didn't take it seriously at all. They kept saying, well, she's 18, it's a Sunset Strip. She probably went home with some guy, she'll be back. But Lisa's mom and her entire family knew that something was wrong. She wouldn't just leave like that. Plus she had left a note saying that she was gonna be back. Roz was Lisa's sister and she and her mom, Betty, began posting flyers all over Sunset Strip and the Hollywood Hills. And that's just when the despair started to kick in. The police then received a tip that there had been a girl found in Las Vegas that could fit the description of Lisa, and she was being forced to act as a prostitute. Unfortunately, the girl was a 15-year-old runaway from Wyoming, a different sad story. Then, almost a month after Lisa's disappearance, Betty, her mom, got a phone call asking if Lisa was there. Then, the man on the line hung up. That's when, moments later, the phone rings again. The man on the other end mentions that he got her phone number and her name because it was written on a matchbook he had found inside of his van, a van that was stolen from the Sunset Strip around the time Lisa disappeared. The man had called this number in hopes of discovering exactly who had stolen his van. That's when authorities followed up with this man. Everybody thought they may have a break in the case. They contacted him, searched his vehicle, and found no information, blood, or evidence that could help the family or the detectives. Detectives checked out his alibi, and it was rock solid, and he wasn't even near Lisa during her disappearance. Months would go by before a new lead arose. There was incredible fear. I remember this well. I remember my mom talking about it. Could Lisa have fallen prey to the Night Stalker? Back in the 1980s, there was this infamous serial killer named Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, and he was known for 13 murders and multiple rapes. His arrest came only seven months after the disappearance of Lisa. But after looking at the M.O.s and comparing the patterns, the Night Stalker, his M.O. just didn't match up. He would break into homes, rape and kill his victims. He didn't abduct them off of the streets of Los Angeles. Nearly two years of looking for Lisa Mather Finally, a grim discovery ended the search. By unimaginable coincidence, a man camping in Coldwater Canyon drove his tent stake right into the ground and hit a human bone. Upon further investigation, he discovered more bones, a rope tied to the base of a tree, and handcuffs hanging from the tree. After comparing the skeletal remains and using dental records, Investigators confirmed that this was indeed the body of Lisa Mather. I will never forget being home when my mother got that call. Unfortunately, the coroner's office could not determine the cause of death given the decomposition. But cause of death aside, the manner of death was clearly murder and homicide investigators searched for similar crimes within the area in hopes of discovering who committed this heinous crime. Fortunately, the department started speaking to each other and they had a stroke of luck when they heard that there had been other cases similar to that of Lisa's. Apparently, there was a serial rapist in the area and he had been captured a long time ago. He had been arrested and prosecuted and he was in prison. He went by the name of Edmund Arna Matthews. Edmund Matthews referred to himself as the Count as that's how he would dress up whenever he would go out. He'd wear a hat and a cape. Evidently, he was quite the charmer. He had a way with words and could lure women away with him. They seemed to fall under his spell. He would promise them nights of fun and maybe even celebrity meetings. Police discovered that Edmund would take women to the same area where Lisa's body was found. His second attack was also after meeting a woman near the Rainbow Bar. He took that victim to the same secluded spot, raped her, and then threatened her with a machete. This victim, however, escaped. And here's where it gets pretty frustrating. January 28th, 1985, Edmund was arrested for the rapes he performed just a few days after Lisa's disappearance. This man has been sitting in prison for nearly two years. The police actually found him coming down the hill in Coldwater Canyon with a lantern and a shovel in the middle of the night. And for some reason, the police did not go back up to the area from which he had come. The families and investigators put these pieces together, concluding that the night the cops found him walking down the hill was the exact night that Lisa had gone missing. Her remains could have easily been discovered then. Lisa's friends, Anthony and Amy, helped identify Edmund as the man talking with Lisa that night. The hard part was that there was no forensic evidence suggesting he had killed her. All of the evidence was circumstantial. However, when detectives visited Edmund at the jail, he confessed to picking up Lisa on Sunset's trip and claimed Lisa willingly left with him. He said that they had consensual sex in a pool at a nearby school before he took her up to Coldwater Canyon. He even claimed that Lisa allowed him to tie her to a tree before continuing their consensual sexual experience, but then she lost her balance, slipped and became entangled in the rope, strangling herself to death. He then claims that he drank too much that night, couldn't free her from the ropes and that her death was a terrible accident. Yeah, right. That's when he mentioned that he returned to the scene, buried her body the best he could and shortly thereafter, the police arrested him on the previous rape charges. Okay, buddy. So, although Edmund claimed Lisa's death was an unfortunate accident, he also recanted this story. He went to trial. A jury found him guilty for first-degree murder of Lisa Mather. Edmund Matthews is currently serving life without the possibility of parole at the California Substance Abuse Treatment Facility in Cocoran, California. Now that you have a better understanding of what went down that night in 1985, I've had the opportunity to speak with both Lisa's aunt and her sister, Nancy and Roz, to hear their side of the story. I've known this story my entire life, but I have never actually sat down to ask the details from the family members, now that I'm an adult. Take a listen and hear more about the Lisa Mather case from the firsthand experiences with her actual family members. This case is unlike any other I've talked about on this podcast because I don't know enough about the killer himself I know barely anything. I can't tell you why he did the things he did or what happened to him in his childhood or how many relatives in his pedigree are killers or criminals or if there are any at all. Perhaps he was abused, perhaps he had brain damage. I don't know. I don't know what set him on this terrifying trajectory. All I can tell you is that he took away the life of a young 18-year-old girl, someone who I had Thanksgiving dinner with, someone who was a loving sister and daughter Someone who, if she were alive today, would be a fierce firecracker of a woman. When my cat's healthy, he's happy. And that makes me happy. But since I'm not a mind reader, I don't always know when he's unwell. For example, my cat had fleas a month's back and he didn't even scratch himself. I had to learn the hard way when there was a bug on my hand after I pet him. But with Pretty Litter, I don't have to worry about my silent cat. Pretty Litter literally changes color to tell you when your cat has a potential health issue, so you can get him the help he needs before it becomes an urgent medical situation. Helping me keep tabs on my cat's health is just one reason I use Pretty Litter. Pretty Litter is ultra-absorbent crystals trap odor instantly, which means no more cat bathroom smell. And I'm not just saying this because the name of the product is Pretty Litter, but the litter is actually quite pretty. It's not like my usual boring gray sand. Each piece of Pretty Litter is like a little diamond for my kitty to pee and poop on. Pretty Litter's super light crystal base also minimizes mess and dust. Plus, the crystals can last up to a month, which means less scooping and fewer trips to the garbage can. Here's the coolest thing about Pretty Litter. It changes color to help monitor early signs of potential illness in my cat, including urinary tract infections and kidney issues. The fact that this litter changes color to help show me when my cat is sick gives me such peace of mind, because my kitty doesn't always let me know when he's not well. And Pretty Litter ships free right to my door in a small, lightweight bag. I never run out of it, and I don't have to have a huge container of litter taking up space and stinking up my place. Pretty Litter keeps tabs on my cat's health and keeps odors down. You and your cat are going to love Pretty Litter as much as we do. Go to prettylitter.com slash how not to save 20% on your first order. That's prettylitter.com slash how not to save 20%. How not. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you so much for doing this. You're welcome. I know it cannot be easy. It's good for me to talk about it because I've seen so
0: much good things come from it. Really? During, before, during, and after.
2: Hmm.
1: After we get through it, I want to come back, circle back to that to understand what you mean because to have that positive attitude, I talk to a lot of family members of victims of crimes and I don't hear that very often. Yeah, this is, I think it's an amazing testimony. I remember meeting you at Nancy's house. It was a holiday, maybe Thanksgiving or Christmas. There were name tags around the table and it said Roz. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, I'm going to sit next to Roz. And I think my mom was probably on the other side and you were so sweet and you talked to me and I was probably nine or 10. I was really young and Lisa and Michael were there as well, but they were too cool. They didn't talk to me but they were teens at the time so I always remembered you because I'm glad I was nice (laughs) you were really nice and I was the only young person because my sister is six years older than me Mm -hmm. she was closer in age to them Mm -hmm. yeah so I didn't really have you know adults talk to me yeah so I always had a fond memory of you well thank
0: you Mm-hmm. I have no memory. <laughs> I'm like, I bet if I went back in time and saw a picture, I'd remember, you know what I mean? But you had long brown hair. I'm glad I was nice. It was kind of flowed like this. Oh, to the side. Yes.
1: Well, I'd love to set the scene a little bit. I am sitting in Annie and Annie's house. So Nancy is my, was my mom's best friend. My mom died a couple years ago. Well, five years ago now and Nancy helped raise my sister and me so she was always Annie Nanny so she was there for all the prom dress shopping, first periods, (laughs) boyfriend breakups, every damn doctor's appointment and there were many I was there weekly with asthma and my sister was there nearly weekly with scoliosis and nasal passage problems and she had multiple surgeries but you can always count on Annie Nanny and my mom to be there. Mm. Just for reference, Nancy's niece was Lisa Mather. It was your husband's daughter's daughter. And we're sitting with Roz, who's Lisa's sister. How old were you when Lisa went missing? Uh, I think
0: it happened in like January of 85. She was found two years later. In 87.
1: Yes. So I was 25. 25. Wow. So... Lisa who was eighteen when she disappeared, correct? Yes. I remember her well as a teenager. She mm-hmm. was cool, hip, you know, back then it was eighty 80s. five. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and she was
0: like super hip for her age. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Like she had the cool hair. Yeah. Had feathers, I think.
0: Yeah, curls, feathers, curls. Great body. Yeah. I beautiful remember smile. Curls. Blonde and hair, blue eyes, beautiful. She was beautiful. Yeah. The
1: great like the great makeup. And totally. She yeah. She was hip. Yeah. Yeah. What was she like as a child? Well, to be honest,
0: she was horrible. (laughs) She was something else. But we did come to find out she had dyslexia. So when she was younger and she kicked the principal, we later understood that it was her dyslexia, you know, and her frustration that nobody understood at the time. But then there was my 16th birthday too and my mom had a surprise party for me and she kind of got jealous or something because we were using her stereo and she just took it and slammed it on the ground oh (laughs) she had a little bit of a temper she was mad but as she was getting older because if i was 16 so she would have been 10. but as she was getting older she was coming so much better Mm -hmm. you know she was finding her way
1: Age you know, will mature
0: you, right? Yes, Literally. Yeah, she was maturing. Yeah. She was definitely maturing.
1: Okay, now yeah. I'll ask you, Nancy, the same question. What you remember of Lisa when she was little and meeting her and
2: I met her when she was three years old, but I wasn't really involved in her life because mm-hmm. I'm only the, you know, yes. wife of the uncle. But she used to have temper tensions. Mm-hmm. I mean, we'd be in a restaurant and she'd just have a temper tantrum and her mother wouldn't discipline her. She never did discipline her that I know of. I never saw her discipline her. I think we have three kids. We're probably just picking your battles, right? But
1: as she matured and got older, then there's the whole teenage years, which comes even if you're the best kid on the planet, it's fraught with. I've never met a teenager who's. Pleasant to parent at least. Right. right. And I remember she was very close with your brother. Was it Michael? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they almost looked like twins. Yeah. I remember they were, they were thin. I kept Mm -hmm. the music. Tall and thin. Mm -hmm.
0: Hip and cool.
1: Yeah. They reminded me of like a Depeche Mode video.
0: Uh Yeah, totally. And they were into Berlin. (gasps) Berlin. You know, they were their friends.
1: They were friends with the band Berlin? Yeah. Yeah, so... Wow, I just yeah. saw them in concert last May. Wow. They played here at the Hollywood... Wow. Well, at the Rose Bowl, right there at Brookside. They had a big 80s concert. Oh. And they just played. Aww. Wow, so they knew them. hmm Okay, so she's cool. She's friends with famous musicians. So is going down to Hollywood, was that part of her weekend routine at that point?
0: Not that I was aware of. Mm-hmm. I was aware because of one night she had called me and it happened to be the night before Easter and asked if i would drive her and amy to the rainbow room and she called like it was like 9 30 at night i think i was already in bed and i'm like oh okay so i picked him up and we went down there and we walked in and she wasn't even 18 yet this was probably she was 17 i think you know early wow. 17. but they let her in anyway and this guy who was a bigwig, wig fijian was there and asked us if we wanted to go to a party at his house. And so we decided we would go and we took his car. I parked my car on Doheny Mm -hmm. and we took his car because it was a classic car. I can't remember the name of it right now. Anyway, we drove up in that. And so we stayed and we went to the party and, you know, like everybody was partying in the big main house and we were all in Fig's room and just partying in there. And hanging out and stuff like that and it was getting late and everything and so I finally had said you know maybe we should get going it was probably you know three thirty, four in the morning something like that and so I went to go look for my purse and I couldn't find my purse oh and then so we all decided somebody must have taken it because it was nowhere you know where we were anywhere yeah. and so I asked him if I could borrow 50 bucks you know I'll call AAA. i I've got AAA. a they'll come they'll start my car blah 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 so he said okay and then he had this other guy who had kind of been coming in and out of the room all mm-hmm. night drive us to where supposedly to meet the AAA a guy with my car you know yeah and as we were driving from his house he was going super fast down the roads, you know, and they're all windy roads down there, down Doheny and up Doheny.
1: This is the Hollywood Hills yeah. in the 80s. Yeah. This is the scene of Bob Seeger's Hollywood Night song. Yeah, 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 yeah. And is it just you, Lisa, and this and man Amy. driving? Oh, Amy's in the car as well. yeah. And yeah, this yeah, man yeah. driving. Right.
0: They were just supposed to take me to my car. So as he's driving and I told him, I asked him, I said, why are you driving so fast, you know? And he's like, you know what, bitch, you better shut up because I'm going to make you walk these streets like a whore. And I'm like... Pleasant. Oh. Okay. So we drive past my car and I said, that's my car. You can let us out here. I'm not letting you out here. I have business to take care of. And I said, oh. So we went to this other guy's house named Jean Pierre and it was Easter morning and he's sitting in this big wicker chair, completely naked. There are men and women strewn all over the house, naked, some naked, some not, whatever. And he jumps up and he says, happy Easter. So I'm like, okay, Lisa, we got to figure this out. You know, we got to get back to the car. So the guy comes back out and he says, I'll take you to your car now. And I said, okay, that'd be great. So I get in the car and Lisa and Amy don't get in the car. Like he speeds off before they get in the car. And he takes me to my car and there's no AAA guy. And he drops me off there. Oh no. And he leaves me there. So here I am walking the street at five o'clock in the morning, not knowing what to do. So I'm walking down Nohini and I'm about to cross Sunset, and I see a Bel Air security officer uh, getting gas. So I ran over there and I jumped in his car <laughs> and I said, that guy over there, can you get him? Can you know, they have my sister, you know, being held hostage right now. You know, I, I didn't know what was going to happen, no. you know? And he says, well, I'm not a police officer. I said, you can at least get the license plate. Just try to catch him, you know? And anyway, we lost him. Oh. He said, you're going to have to call the police. So I go back to the Arco station and I call the police. Seven squad cars show up. No. Seven squad cars show up. And he said, well, what street? And I said, I don't know. I said, I came up from that way. And so we had gone up Doheny to every single side street for like two hours until the cops were about to get off of shift. And one of the guy who wasn't driving, officer, said, we're going to have to get going. And I said, well, I can't just leave my sister and her friend. They're being held against their will. Yeah. You know, they're minors. And I was just crying. And so the one officer, the same officer said, why don't we just go straight up Doheny? That's the only street we haven't really been up. If you came from this place. So during all this time, all seven cars would go in a cul-de-sac, come out, going, you know what I mean? It took a long time because we were all, and we went up Doheny, straight up Doheny. And as we drove past this house, I said, that's the house, that's the house, that's the house. And so all the cops get out, surround the house with guns, and they go in and get Lisa and Amy. They went in and they
1: got Lisa. You must have been petrified.
0: I was, I was. And when they got back to the car, and Amy since, I've talked to her since, and she's like, God, I was so mad at you, Roz. <laughs> and as they got in the car, they're both like, oh, we're never going to get invited anywhere ever again, you know? And I'm like, oh, my God, get in the car. That's what they're
1: thinking, Yeah, not, thank you then, for coming to get us. It's right, No,
0: not at all. And Amy had told me later, just a couple of years ago, when I talked to her, she said, yeah, Roz, she said, I was so mad at you. I said, well, do you know what happened? I mean, hello, you know? Wow. Anyway, so just to quickly finish the story, the cops drop us off back at Arco. Mm-hmm. I still don't have my car. I still don't have anything. My purse, nothing, right? And we're sitting out against a brick wall. And we're just like, now what? You know, now what? Now who do we call? What do we do? You know? And just as she said that, a tow truck drove up. And honest to God, he puts his head out the window and he says, what happened to you? Girls look like you've been through hell. And I'm like, uh-huh. And he brought us coffee and donuts, what took us to my car, Wow. got it started for me. And I was able to drive everybody home. Wow. But that was a big thing for me to be able to go through and witness mm-hmm. before she died, mm-hmm. because it gave me some ideas of where she
1: could be and who might've had her and why. I can't even imagine what would have happened. I mean, Lisa and Amy probably just would have stayed at that party and then hoped they could call your mom later to come get them. Like what would have happened?
0: I don't know. That's harrowing. Well, because of the way that the guy that drove us there was acting, that's what really made it nerve wracking because it was a guy like him. And what's he going to do going to get drugs early in the morning at Mm -hmm. five? You know, it just wasn't a good scene. Anything could have happened. You know?
1: Wow. And Nancy, you, Maurice, your mom and dad, did they have any idea you guys were out at parties like this? No. No. Mm -mm. No. Well, I was living on my own. Yeah, you're older. I was living on my own. Wow. So that is so telling because it comes Mm -hmm. not much later that Mm -hmm. this whole event happens. Okay. So Lisa ends up back on the strip with Amy and Anthony. Did Mm -hmm. you guys know Amy and Anthony? I know Amy. Okay. Anthony said he met me also, (laughs) but... I you don't remember. remember. Well, you don't remember meeting me either. And I'm I know sorry, you're but I, I remember <laughs> something. I'm very sorry. <laughs> so, Nance, had you ever heard of Anthony?
2: Never heard of Anthony until we were watching yeah. Oxygen, and he was a big part of it. We right. didn't even know when we were being interviewed by the TV station that he existed. Right. Wow. And he was a big surprise to me, hmm. and I know he was to you too, yeah. right? Yeah. Where did he come from?
1: So. As I've read the story, and I don't know if it's accurate, they end up down there near the Whiskey-A-Go-Go on this night in January of 1985. And they weren't able to get into the club. You mentioned that Lisa got into the Rainbow Room mm-hmm. just shortly before that. But for some reason this night, they can't get in.
2: Right. I and mean, right. this Was it 18 and over? It was 21, wasn't it? It was opening night at the Whiskey-A-Go-Go for 18 and older. It was okay. always 21 before. But... Whiskey A Go had been closed, I don't know, for renovations or what, and it was their opening night. Okay, okay. And they were in line to get in. But they didn't get in. No, not because they weren't allowed in. They weren't to the door yet. Okay. As far as I understand, another friend of theirs was there. Jill. It was Amy, Jill, and Lisa. And, you know, they were... They are talking to people and doing whatever they do, and all of a sudden, they realized Lisa was gone. She wasn't with them anymore. And one of the, Jill or Amy, said to the other one, where's Lisa? Mm-hmm. And they were looking around for her, and she was gone. She just disappeared. I read
1: that. I read that they were outside listening yes. to the music. They could hear it from the outside, and everyone was dancing. Somewhere I read they were on the back of a pickup yeah. truck. Well,
2: they showed that, in yeah.
1: the- Is that the- accurate? Because you know TV can get a little mm-hmm. inaccurate. Yeah.
0: yeah, they were dancing in the back of a flatbed truck. Oh,
1: okay. And they basically said what you just said, Nancy, that they were like, wait a minute, where'd Lisa go? They
0: saw her talking to this guy. Okay. And so Le- Amy
1: saw her talking
0: to this guy oh. on the corner. And so they didn't think anything of it. And they just went like went up and were dancing in the truck and stuff like that. And then when they at some time came back and realized Lisa wasn't talking to that guy anymore. And they went looking and they didn't ever find her again.
1: So she's talking to this man. They see it. And that's the last time they see yes. her. But they remember him. Yes. So what do they do then? I mean, this is before cell phones and going out late isn't that unusual yeah. for teens. So what do they do once they realize, shit, where's Lisa?
0: I think they just figured maybe she went out. You know, maybe she went home with a guy or maybe she dated or hooked up. I don't know. Maybe she's whatever, but they figured she was okay.
2: uh, I don't think that they really thought there was foul play. Okay, so then. I think they thought that Lisa went with somebody on her own, Mm -hmm. which maybe she did get in the car with him. Who knows?
1: Well, he's from what I've read about him, he sounds like he's kind of a forceful, manipulative person. Mm -hmm. you think? I mean, kind of sounds like a monster. But mm-hmm. so now everyone goes home without Lisa. Mm-hmm. Do they call Betty? Do they call your mom right away? Or do they wait? When does Amy call you guys and say, Hey, where's Lisa? Or we haven't found Lisa? Or do you guys no, call no. Amy? I didn't. Okay,
0: I didn't. It was really up to my mom because she was. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was up to me too. But I mean, I felt like she would come home. Well, know. and let's set the scene a
1: little bit. She's 18. She's technically an adult. Yeah. It's the 80s. Right. People are partying. Right. Right. It was a little while. I've been there. Mm-hmm. I've done that. So, you know. And not coming home one night is not right. mean, the end of the world. If you think about a lot of 18-year-olds are off in college. They're not going back to their dorm room every night. Right. I remember you calling my mom. And I remember sitting there and mom saying, Lisa's missing. Lisa's missing. And for me, this is also the age of milk cartons and kids on the back of milk cartons. So for me, it meant that somebody kidnapped her, like grabbed her off the street. Kids are so literal. And it was so jarring. I was, I think nine or 10 and I was thinking, oh my God, we all have to go out and look for Lisa. Mm -hmm. Like you would a lost pet or a child. So I know the timeline's a little fuzzy, but eventually your mom files a missing persons report. I don't know what happens from then on. Take me from that point forward.
0: Well, at first, the detective or the officer that she talked to wouldn't file a missing persons report because she was 18. And because they said, you know, this happens all the time. Kids run away, blah, 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 blah. So they wouldn't really do it at first. It took a lot on my mom's part to try to get the detective that ended up doing it to file the report. They had their own leads. They never asked me. I had my own private investigator. And my mom was seeking out psychics and people like that, you know, all that kind of stuff to get her answers. And we didn't talk a whole lot about it because in my mind, it was like, until I know differently, you know, I'm just going to consider that she's going to come walking through the door, Mm -hmm. you know, one day. But until then, I'm going to keep looking. So I wasn't like dwelling on the super negative, like I needed to be able to function too. I went to all those places that I knew of that I went to that party with before. Talked to the police about all those people and said all of them are possibilities, you know.
1: Did you guys go interview any of those people you had been with during that party before?
0: I don't know if they did. I gave them all the information that I knew, Mm -hmm. but they wouldn't
1: tell me if they followed up or anything like that. So what did you think had happened to Lisa while she's missing during these first few weeks? What did you believe was the real fate
0: we really didn't know mm-hmm. I just totally chose to think that she's okay
1: She's okay yeah how about your mom and your dad
0: she, well I thought my dad was a suspect you know I, I really did you know Not mm-hmm. my stepdad was stepdad a, Step, my stepdad I should be clear yeah. About that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 and it wasn't Lisa's father either so
1: oh Her Wally died. wasn't there no oh. Wally was not
0: their father uh-uh
1: so this is the third, okay. The third father. Okay, their yeah. dad died. I yes. remember now. I remember. Yeah. 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 So no one knows what to think. Everybody's holding out hope.
2: Well, she hired Cher. That, the, not Cher the... Not the singer. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> the psychic. A psychic named Cher she hired. Oh, yeah. She was really well-known about the world, but she in the United States, she was the psychic to go to. She said that she saw Lisa in a car... Or a truck. And she went to uh, Children of the Night. Remember that organization? I just interviewed the woman who set it up. She was getting her PhD at
1: the time studying children who had been sex trafficked or working as sex workers. And some of the girls she knew were victims of somebody I was covering, the Hillside Strangler. So I had a really long conversation. This woman's a saint. She's a saint. But okay, God, my worlds collide. So Betty went and talked to the people organizing the Children of the Night.
2: Yeah. She really fought for the two years to find Lisa. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, she really. Yeah. She went pure white overnight. She was a redhead, Betty. And she went. Lisa's mom. She went
1: pure white overnight. I remember coming home from school. I would frequently say, "Mom, did they find Lisa? Did they find Lisa?" Because you know, when you're a child, it's so scary. Mm-hmm. It's, so, it's every parent's worst yeah. nightmare. Yeah. And as a child, it's like it's just so unbelievable. It and it yeah. feels like it can happen to you. But I, actually, this one's for you. Because okay. I remember coming home and asking again, and you were there with my mom. And you said, you told me a story that was so bone chilling to me. You said, Betty got out of the shower and saw her own reflection in the mirror. But she thought it was Lisa. She didn't realize it was herself. And she's like, Lisa, you're home. And I don't know if you guys remember that, but I remember it like yesterday, like that feeling of coming out because you're discombobulated the mirror is all fogged up. It ended up being her own reflection. But for a split second, she thought it was Lisa. And she was just so inconsolable after that. And now that I'm a mom, I'm like, I can't even imagine waking up every day. It's one thing to lose a child, which is the worst pain you can go through. But it brings a whole different level of panic horror and despair to not know what happened to that person to that child i can't imagine what that was like for those two years and not that it felt any better after you knew but at least there was an answer so days turned to weeks weeks turned to months and still no leads what happened then because there did end up being some red herrings and dead ends right
0: yeah the police found a stolen van and in the back of the van on the match cover was my mom's phone number? How
1: did that get written
0: there? by Lisa? We assume. Wow. You know, it looked like Lisa's writing.
1: Was this mere coincidence? I don't know if there are any coincidences, you know, but this van was not the van used to. Abduct I don't her. know
0: if they. Yeah. Well, it could have been. It could have been. So, I mean, I did not go to the trial, so I don't know if that came out in the trial that mm-hmm. he used that van. But apparently, she was in that van because she left the phone number on a match cover,
1: and wow. that guy. But that owner of that van was not the suspect. Right. So the police are thinking, aha, this could be the van. But that van had been stolen. Right. And the owner of the van had an alibi. Is -hmm. that correct? Mm -hmm. But we don't know who was driving the van when Lisa wrote that phone number in there. Right. So then the next thing that happens is a man is arrested.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Tell me about where he was and how he was arrested and who he was.
0: Edmund Arnie Matthews. Who was known as the Count, because he always wore a trench coat on Sunset Strip. So that's what, you know, everybody that knew him called him the Count. He, up in the Hollywood Hills, he had abducted two girls.
1: Yeah, he had two yeah. other.
0: they went and told the police and where it was and everything else. And as the police were coming up to get him, he was coming down the hill or wherever where he had been staying, and the police you know, took custody of him on the hill. Nobody ever bothered to go back up to where he was living, you know, or where he had just come from. Right. He was coming down, I think, with a shovel.
1: A shovel and a lantern.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the fact that they didn't go back up there.
1: And what would they have found? My sister. Because this was just a couple days after she went missing, wasn't it?
0: Yes. Yes. It was just a couple days afterwards.
2: He was incarcerated the two years yeah. that we were, that Lisa was missing. Right. So a man with the
1: answers is in police custody. Uh-huh. And because they hadn't gone up there, that could have saved your family two yes. years yeah. of oh, agony. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And because they didn't go, where'd you come from? How do they know there's not more vic- Maybe he's got a house full I of victims. Know. I know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is not the yeah. first
2: time I've heard of shoddy police work. Wow. Uh-huh. Well, he was arrested for the rape of the two other women. They had no connection with Lisa and mm-hmm. him at the time. But this is the
1: Hollywood Hills, right? You know Lisa's been missing
2: yeah.
1: from that area. Yeah. Maybe there are other girls too. I mean, uh, it's yeah. not unheard of, well, but yeah. wouldn't you connect the dots? Yeah. Yeah. One would think.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. So he doesn't admit anything about Lisa or anybody else when he's arrested. No, he never says a word. Does he go on trial for the rape of these two girls?
2: No, he was, no. uh -uh. He
1: just pled out?
2: He was just arrested. He was in jail. But at least he's off the
1: street. Yeah, yeah. So take me through these two years. It must have been mental torture and agony. Yeah, of course.
0: You know, my mom was looking and I was looking. And my brother was just brokenhearted. We didn't know who to believe, who to trust and everything. So we were just looking in different directions. I was going with what I knew and what I saw and what I was praying for and hoping for. And she was going her way, you know, looking for answers and keeping on looking and continuing to bug the police and, you know, have them do something. So tell me about how they eventually find your sister. I love this story. This, I love, this is my favorite part of the story. A homeless guy, a homeless man. And I, I had his name and I tried to get in touch with him and thank him years later, but came upon her body as he was in the Hollywood Hills. And so he had the fortitude to go to the police. You know, he had to walk to the police. There was no cell phones and all of that. You know, he went and he said, I found a body. Wow. And when they went and got that body, somebody, finally, the light switch went on. And they recalled that this was near the place that they arrested Edmund And put two and two together and asked him, you know, they interrogated him. Wow. And he admitted it and he admitted to the whole thing, details, you name it, every gory detail and everything else. And then he recanted his testimony and he said, I said all that under duress, you know, so that's why there had to be a trial.
1: Did you learn anything from his initial confession that about what happened to her that gave you closure?
0: Nothing that would give us comfort, Mm -hmm.
1: you know. Oh, she I was mean,
2: tortured for two days. He tied her to a tree up off Mahone Drive and she hung there for two days and he'd come and go. And then he finally killed her. He had put socks in her mouth,
0: you know, to keep her from screaming and stuff like that. And apparently what he said, his defense was that she was struggling so much trying to get free that she killed herself, that she choked, you know, and broke her neck. Because of that. Bullshit. So, yeah. I've seen enough of these. Yeah. I've yeah. seen enough of these wackadoodle stories they make up. You know, he talked in his testimony about having a machete. There was evidence that he used it.
1: So, he's
0: just a bad dude. Such
1: Why do you think guy. he killed her and not the other ones? Do you think she fought harder? Yes.
0: I'm sure.
1: That's why I wanted to establish who I, was. And I mean,
0: and you know, and that's, I love that you did that because her fiery spirit mm-hmm. from a child, I know she fought back. She was no cream puff. You know, she was tall and beautiful, but she was strong, very
1: strong. And I know she fought. He wasn't going down without a fight. No,
2: no. no. You know.
1: Nance, you went to the trial.
2: I did. Yeah.
1: Tell me everything you remember about the trial.
2: Well, I only went for one day. But I'll never forget him. I mean, he turned around from the table and just stared at me. Because he knew you were her aunt? I don't know if he knew who we were. My mom and dad were visiting from Wisconsin with us, and the three of us went to the trial. They were going for the death penalty, but somehow it got turned around where it went life without parole, mm-hmm. which he's still serving. But he was, ooh, just scary, I mean, you have somebody that looked like him. I mean, he just looked... He looked like the Count? Well, I don't know what a Count looks like. Yeah. <laughs> I imagine. Scary, right? You think of the cape. I mean, and he, the... he just had these evil eyes hmm. and just... Ooh. And then the defense was going to come the next day because the prosecution, whoever they were... Prosecution had wrapped up. Its defense Pretty is going to open. Yeah. Yeah. But we were asked not to return. Oh. By whom? Betty. Okay, so she didn't want... Was Betty there in the trial? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, every day, yeah. sure.
1: Yeah.
2: But we got home and I got a phone call from her saying, she told me that the prosecution said not to have us there. Hmm. I wonder why. I don't know that they paid any attention to that like I did, but from my understanding... They were going to bring up a lot of questions about Lisa.
1: When she didn't want you to hear. Right. Okay. That makes sense. I've seen that before where it's just too sensitive and some of it's not true even when they bring it up. When the defense brings it up, they try to Mm -hmm. slander the decedent. Yeah. Yeah. I can see why Betty wouldn't want you there. Did you learn anything about Edmund's background? Do we know anything about him, where he came from? Who was he? Right. Because I'm trying to understand how he became this monster because that's the whole point of this. It's not just to let people hear a creepy story. It's to try to understand how this could have been prevented. Where did Edmund go wrong? Was he always a bad seed? Was he becoming emboldened because he got away with it with two other girls and he became a murderer once he found a girl he couldn't control? You know, there's so many layers to this Mm -hmm. that has anyone spoken to him since he's been incarcerated? Anybody from your family? No. no. Have you ever had an urge to talk mm-hmm. to him? Mm-hmm. What would you ask him? I
0: thought about it a lot, mm-hmm. you know, and someone told me I probably shouldn't go, you know, mm-hmm. but I don't know. I guess I would see when I get there, you know, mm-hmm. what I like obviously. Why would you do that? Or
1: Yeah. Or what, what kind
0: of person are you and what did you do before and did you know Lisa before?
1: Yeah. What was their relationship? with? Yeah, did they have
0: any relationship or were they just strangers?
1: I've talked to parents and family members who've gone and spoken to the criminals. And there's this thing called restorative justice, where the criminal comes and talks to the family and, and says what happened because the family believes it'll give them closure, but it cuts both ways. Mm-hmm. And the criminal agrees to do it because it usually takes the death penalty off the table. It's usually during trial, but I've seen it cut both ways. I've seen some families feel like oh, I saw a human, not just the monster there. And I understood where he came from. And and it didn't make them feel better, but it gave them understanding. But I've seen it cut the other way, too, where they're like, God, I wish I had never given that man five minutes of my time. So, yeah, you can cut both ways. How did this change the lives of the members of your family?
0: Well... It was terrible. My brother, for one, just lost his best friend forever. And he never really got over it. Mm. He never got over it.
1: Was he older than Lisa? Yeah.
0: Almost two years older. Wow. And totally changed my mom. She never got over it. Mm -mm. She couldn't find any justice, any goodness, nothing. Nothing. So, and there's always so much guilt, I think, as a parent or even as a loved one. Could I have done something different? Could I have done something different? I mean, don't know that I really could have.
1: Ex- I, I mean, it doesn't sound you like you know. could have. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No one can predict that. And yeah. no one can predict if somebody gets into the claws of a really manipulative person yeah. who's like, oh, just come to the car for a second. Yeah. I have something to show you or give you or here, let's get into the club the back way. Yeah. A myriad of things could have been said to Lisa. Yeah this one, it's crazy because I talk to criminals. I talk to victims. I talk to victim's family. That's what we do. And this one, they'd asked me to do it, but I had struggled because I can't give the vegetables with this one. I can't say what happened. Why is this guy doing this? What drove him to do this? What could have prevented him from doing this? And that's hard for me to tell a story without being able to say, hey guys, if you have a kid at home who's Fascinating. So, we have this problem. There's these people with these fetishes, starts in childhood, they're sexual fetishes. They don't seek help because you don't want to go tell people that you are sexually attracted to something that's not sexual. So, there's not a lot of therapists. You're afraid if you tell somebody that they're going to turn you into yeah. something. Yeah. So, we see a lot of them become rapists later mm. because they're trying to find a way to live out this. So one of the things that I do is try to like, let's not just talk about the crimes. Let's try to help. Like
0: if you were to interview him, being who you are and doing what you do, would you like ask him about his childhood? Where did he Mm -hmm. grow up? Mm -hmm. How, what was it like? What did he like? What did he do? Things like that.
1: And I know the questions to ask because I know what matters. Yeah. So did you have any surgeries? What was your birth like? Did you have a traumatic birth? Because that's predictive of a lot of criminal behavior. Did you ever have a concussion? Were you dropped on your head? Did you have any surgeries? Were you ever under anesthesia? Did you have any major illnesses in your life? Tell me about your pedigree. Anybody ever been arrested for a violent crime? On and on and on and on and on to build a profile. So those are the questions I would ask him Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and try to put it together.
0: And would you ask him specifically about Lisa or the other
1: people that Mm -hmm, he mm -hmm. he's not. He probably, it depends on where he is in his life. If he pleaded not guilty he probably still wouldn't want to tell me what he did to Lisa, but I could divine a lot of it if he told me what he did to the others. Or maybe he's sat there for the last 40 years and he's ready to talk. Is there anything I haven't asked you guys yet that you thought should be part of this? And then I want to talk to you about all the good things that have come since.
2: Well, from my understanding, Betty and Wally were in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. They had a home in Hawaii and the transient from Canada, was pitching his tent and he put one of the tent poles right down into Lisa's grave. That's how he found mm. her because it was a shallow grave. But there were three graves: two of Lisa and one where he buried her clothes separately. Huh.
1: So he- Maybe he thought he was going to move her, come back for her.
2: Anyway, that's how she was found. She probably never, ever would have been found had it not been for this transient. Because it's so vast up there. Like that exact spot, he puts a stake in the ground or a shovel in the ground
1: or whatever he did. What are the chances? I tried to hunt him down. I mean, I looked, I found out his name
0: and I can't remember how, but I got his numbers or got people with his name and numbers and I just never was able to actually find him. But I wanted to find him and I wanted to thank him.
1: Yeah, Yeah. because he really brought some sort of closure yes yes Wow.
2: then i said betty and wally were in hawaii when it's happened but she told me that the minute they found lisa there was a little bird outside her bedroom window Hmm. in hawaii pecking on the window and she looked up and the bird said to her it's okay mommy i've been found Oh, my gosh. And, of course, they packed up and came right home. But she said there was a little bird pecking at the window, and she looked up, and the bird said, I'm okay, Mommy. I've been found. Wow.
0: Oh, the morning she was found, I was staying at my mom's house with my then-fiance, and I got the call from the detective. And he said, you know, I need to talk to your mom. And I said, well, she's not here. You know, I, can you tell me? And I'll, no, I need to talk to your mother. So I said, okay. So I gave him the number in Hawaii and he called her. And then she called me and told me that Lisa had been found. How did you feel? I was very sad. I was really sad. I wanted to believe that, you and know. she would be found alive. Like six, yes. Six, I mean, I thought maybe she ran away with some French guy and is living in France. You know what I mean? I made up all these things in my mind. Even though I and that I had all those other experiences that were telling me otherwise, you know, I chose to think the best until I knew. And that night the camera crews and everything came to where my mom's apartment was and they all wanted interviews and stuff and I'm like, I can't, Mm-mm. I can't, you know. So I sent my then fiance out and he told him, you know, there's no comment from the family at this time and blah 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 and stuff like that. And it's just so heartbreaking, you know. It's I've like chills. where do you go from there? Yeah, you know.
1: Because no matter how unlikely it seems that she's okay, it's self protective to hold out hope. Oh, right. Right. Like, total chills. Yeah, You don't want to go through mourning her death and thinking of what happened to her when you don't have to. Right, right. But then at that point, you have to then face that. Yeah, yeah. Mm. How was it for your mom? Did you see a shift after that for her?
0: I mean, it just got harder because then there was the trial. And she had heard the full confession.
1: She heard the confession. Yes.
0: So after hearing that, and then the guy saying... I was under duress. I made all that stuff up. It was just, it's heart-wrenching.
1: So, Roz, you mentioned good things came from this. What do you mean? Well,
0: I mean, just the fact that that guy came and found her body. That's incredible. I mean, that's why I think there's really no coincidences. Mm -hmm. I think some things are, they're meant to be, you know. Yeah.
1: All right. Thank you. Thank you to both Nancy and Roz for coming on the show and telling your story. And thank you for listening to another episode of How Not to Raise a Serial Killer. How Not to Raise a Serial Killer is a Cloud 10 Media production, executive produced by me, Dr. Michelle Ward, and Sim Sarna. Our music was created by Josh Cook, with artwork provided by Brian Stefanik. Follow us on Instagram at How Not to Raise a Serial Killer, and on TikTok and Twitter at Hentrask. That's at H N. T-R-A-S-K. If you like our show, do me a favor and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. After all, if more people know about the show, maybe fewer kids will turn into serial killers. Who knows? Thanks so much for listening. See you next week.